We're in kind of a little mini-series within the series. Uh, Remember that righteousness requires reconciled relationships. Um, Jesus told the uh, disciples, people there in the crowd listening to him, that their righteousness had to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, that their righteousness requires them to reconcile their various relationships. Uh, last week we deal, dealt with uh, anger being, being murder. Uh, today we're going to deal with uh, lust being adultery. So the title of today's message will be Purity Begins Within. Purity Begins Within. If you're in Matthew chapter 5, I want you to find verse 27. We'll read down to verse 32. Verse 27 says, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old, old time, that thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out, cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not thy whole body should be cast into hell. If thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Uh, It hath been said, uh, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let uh, him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, uh, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery, and uh, whosoever shall uh, marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. And I'm probably going to make some of y'all mad this morning. Um, I may hurt the feelings of some of you, and that's not my intention, but I think it's going to be a pro- byproduct of, of what you're going to hear. Uh, I'm sorry for that. I'm not going to apologize for what the Word of God says, but, but I do apologize if feelings... Um, are wounded in the process. Our scripture this morning covers three of the most sensitive subjects in the Word of God. Uh, Sex, adultery, and divorce. All the teenagers suddenly perked up, right, listening. That being the case, along with what the Lord says here in the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to search more of the Word of God to find out what God's plan is for our, our sexual purity. And in these verses, uh, the Bible gives a strong message about sex, adultery, and divorce. But please don't tune me out if you have gone through a divorce or are struggling in your marriage right now. There is probably not a family here that hasn't been hurt or touched in some way by divorce. My dad divorced his first wife because she ran around on him. Uh, I have two half-brothers as a result of his first marriage. Uh, One died in a car accident in Germany years ago. One is in prison at the moment. My sister is divorced. Um, Her former husband was controlling, manipulative, abusive, and she left, and I think rightfully so, for her and her children's safety. Um, Some divorces, some divorces need to happen. And if you're thinking otherwise, it shows a a lack of understanding of what the totality 
of the Word of God teaches on this subject. We're not here to judge divorced people. Nobody knows the pain of divorce better than those who have been through it. Uh, and God, yes, God hates divorce, but he loves divorced people like he loves everybody else. And, and so, so let, let me give you the background of this passage then uh, before we get into the application of this. Um, once again, the Pharisees' teaching were concerned only with, with the outward act, okay? Like, like, like anger being murder, their, their teaching didn't penetrate the surface, so they missed that lust is adultery. Jesus affirmed God's law of purity, and then he explained that the intent of this law <clears throat> was, to reveal, <coughs> excuse me, was to reveal the sanctity of marriage and the sinfulness of the human heart. Now, they correctly quoted the commandment, but they missed its point. They, they knew, but they, but they didn't do. Uh, a lot of us here know the word of God, and we are proud of what we know, and we want others to know uh, that we know a lot about the word of God. Um, it's important to us that others know the extent of our knowledge of what the Bible says, but, but knowing means nothing if doing does not accompany that. It doesn't matter how much Bible you know if you sleep around on your spouse. It doesn't matter how much Bible you know if you look at porn images on your phone or your computer. It doesn't matter how much Bible you know if you neglect the needs of your spouse. What matters is knowing and doing what you know. Adultery begins in the heart, that's looking lustfully, and then it follows with the act, just the, the lustful desire in the heart uh, being as wrong as the act. What that shows is that we are not rightly related with God. It says, whosoever looketh on a woman. Okay, that, that, that's not just the wife. And this applies to women as well as men by principle. Whether it's a man looking on a woman to lust or a woman looking on a man to lust, it says to, to, to look on anyone to lust after them has committed adultery already without having done anything. This command forbids not just the act of fornication and the act of adultery but all the lusting after everything that is forbidden this is the beginning of sin James 1:15 calls it lust being conceived then brings forth death and this command forbids all the attitudes that go with this feeding the eye with the, with the side of, of, of that thing that Scripture forbids, not only looking towards that end so that I can lust, but it's looking until I do lust or looking to gratify that lust. Now, the desire and the deed are not identical, but spiritually speaking, they are equivalent. The look that Jesus mentioned was not a casual glance, but a constant stare with the purpose of lusting. It is, it's possible for a man or woman to glance at somebody, know they're attractive, and there not be lust involved. 
All right, we, we understand that. But the person Jesus described here looked at someone for the purpose of feeding their sensual appetites. Uh, they're looking so that they can lust. And this is, this is one of the, of the thousands of reasons why pornography is sin and why it is so destructive. It's, 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 it's very foundation is a lie. Its, its promises are lies. It serves one purpose, and that is to destroy. It has ruined marriages. It has ruined lives. It has ruined ministries. It has ruined families. It has ruined people's futures. It's more addictive, actually, than booze or drugs. See, God created sex, and he declared it good. He set guidelines around it, gave it a context, and says, this is how it glorifies me. This is how it is debauchery and sin. Satan, as he does with everything, has counterfeited and corrupted God's good thing. And if you're addicted to pornography, we can help. We, have, we, we can help you get free. Remember that the power of sin is in the secret, but it will be the most difficult thing you have ever done or ever will do is get free from the bondage of this. But we need to understand that looking in order to lust is sin. One commentary says, and if looking be lust, they who dress and deck and expose themselves with designs to be looked at and lust after are no less guilty. People sin, but devils tempt to sin. Now that includes Facebook and Instagram and whatever else is out there. We have to be like Job, Job 31.1. For he makes a covenant with his eyes not to look upon a maid. That he makes a covenant not to do with his eyes that which would be sin. And the hands and the eyes are usually the two culprits when it comes to sexual sin. So they have to be disciplined. They have to be dealt with immediately. They have to be dealt with decisively. You don't, you don't taper off with this sin. You cut off this sin. But Jesus is words here in Matthew 5, 29 and 30 have been often misunderstood and, and, and misapplied. Uh, in, in literature, they call this hyperbole. It's exaggeration to make a point. Obviously, Jesus was not teaching physical mutilation because a blind man can have just as much a problem with lust as a sighted person does. A person with one hand can sin just as readily as someone with two. Jesus is advocating the removal of the inward cause of the, of, 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 of the offense. Now, not, since a lustful heart would ultimately lead to adultery, then it's your heart that has to be changed, and only by that kind of change can you escape hell. Something else. Once we get down to verse 31 and 32. See, under, under Jewish law, adultery referred only to the wife's behavior, not the husband's. Much like the Muslims today, the woman was held responsible for making the man sin. Jesus does what he always does. He raises the status. He, 
He raises the value of women by holding the men accountable for the sins that are in their heart. See, the feminist movement today is, is a joke. Jesus did and Jesus does do real things to protect women and to give them back the value that sin has taken from them. See, under, under Moses, the men were perm- permitted to, to, to divorce their wives. You know, they, they had to give a, a bill of divorcement, so to speak. That was for the wives' protection. Otherwise, the wives would be kicked out with nothing and, and, and no means to provide for themselves. So divorce started as a means to protect the women because of the hardness of the men's hearts. But this, too, was, was corrupted. A man could divorce his wife for, for burning dinner, for expressing an opinion the husband didn't like, for not being what the man wanted in the bedchamber, for frivolous, fickle reasons. But along comes Jesus, the teacher with authority, And what he does essentially is hits the men right where it counts. He tells them that their hearts are vile, that their hearts are wicked, that they are responsible for their own actions. Jesus here is freeing the women from the oppressive abuses of the misinterpreted and misapplied law. See, don't don't you ever believe that Christianity done right oppresses women. Ladies, it may be oppressive to your pride, but Jesus never oppresses you. Jesus limits the reasons for divorce. He removes the frivolity. He, He did away with all the fickleness, and he gave the wives some safety. He gave the wives some security. Now, the exception clause, except for marital unfaithfulness, that's the word porneus. It's where we get the word pornography from. It's understood by the commentators four main ways, okay? The single act of adultery, unfaithfulness during the betrothal period, which was kind of like an engagement but a little more heavy duty. Uh, Marriage between relatives, that comes from Leviticus 18. You don't want to be marrying your cousin, okay? (laughs) Now, I'm, I'm, I'm from the South. I don't claim it, but I'm from it, so I understand this. Close relations ought not get married if that happens. Okay, time to end things. The last reason was for continued promiscuity. It seems to be a graphic way of forbidding divorce except when the other partner has already irreparably broken the marriage covenant. So when a spouse breaks the marriage covenant by sexual sin, by abuse, by neglect, divorce may then be an option if reconciliation isn't possible. So grounds to pursue divorce because the marriage covenant has already been broken seems to be physical, emotional, or sexual neglect of your spouse. See, that's the having to hold thing. Or by physically, emotionally, or sexually abusing your spouse. Because if you're doing that, you're not loving and you're not honoring your spouse. You've broken the marriage covenant. And by being unfaithful with another person or an image, as in pornography, because that means you've not forsaken all others. 
A lot of y'all may not like that, but if you show me from the word of God where I am wrong, I will change my position and I will do it publicly, I promise. But again, God means to force this issue so that our righteousness, your righteousness, doesn't remain a surface or a self-righteousness, but it becomes a Christ-righteousness. See, if there will be reconciliations in our relationships as righteousness requires, there has to be purity. There has to be purity in our hearts. There has to be purity in our relationships. The purity begins within. Purity begins with the work of the Holy Spirit of God through the Word of God. So how? How do we live in the purity, the sexual purity that God commands of us? How do we how do, we do this? Well, there can be no doubt that sexual sin is out of control today. It, it, there's no question. The CDC reports in 2018 that there were approximately 20 million new STD infections. Almost half of those are ages 15 to 24. The total number of sexually transmitted infections in the U.S. is almost 110 million. 110 million. Now that mind-boggling number is even more mind-boggling when you realize that about 206 million of those are, you know, in our, our country's population is 15 to 64. So almost half of that age range are suffering the consequences of their sin. Now surely some of those were multiple infections over a year, but you take that into account and that's close to half. On top of that, in 2018, over 40% of all children born in the U.S. were born to unwed mothers. Over 40%. Sex sin is out of control. Now, how can we live in the purity that God commands of us? Well, God, God will provide for us. God, God will make a way for us to obey him. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, Paul says that, 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 that no temptation is taking you but such as is common to man. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. No matter what the temptation is, God will give you a way out. He says, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So, you know, no, no, we don't expect sinners not to act like sinners. We expect lost people to act like lost people. Uh, we love them exactly where they are, wherever they find themselves. Okay, we, we, we don't impose Christ's righteousness on somebody who doesn't know Christ. That's not our job. Okay? But God forbid that these sins should be common among us who say we carry the name of Jesus with us. We must not be like the world not in this sin or in respect of any other sin. God will make a way for us not to sin. So what do we do? Number one, one of the most important things we can do is respect and accept God's standards for purity. So that sounds so old-fashioned. I mean, doesn't God want me to have any fun? How many times have you heard that? God 
God really doesn't care whether you have fun or not. God cares that you obey his commands because with the obeying of his commands comes blessing and protection and long life. That's what God wants for you. So you have to respect and accept that because God is God, he knows more than you. We don't like that, do we? No, no. I'm, this is my life. How does God know better than me what's good for me? Because he's God. As Phil mentioned, it's not your life. You know Christ is Savior. You are bought with a price. You are owned. You are not yours. It's a whole lot harder than it used to be. It's a whole lot harder to live pure partly because social media preaches just the opposite of this 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I'm going to express a personal opinion here, and I'm moving away from the Word of God. It is my personal opinion, so I'm telling you ahead of time, no teenager needs a smartphone. The pornography will come looking for them. They don't have to go looking for it. And when it comes looking, it will find them. So don't set them up for years of bondage and years of heartache just because you weren't strong enough or didn't love them enough to say no to them. That's my personal opinion. Let's get back to the word of God. See, it doesn't matter what the world thinks. God has a standard of behavior that he expects from us. Living together, unmarried, is not acceptable to God. Sexual fantasy is not acceptable to God. Any sexual activity outside of your own marriage is not acceptable to God. And if it's not acceptable to God, it is sin. Plain and simple, there's no other way to paint it. That's what it is. As far as the world's concerned, there's really only two sexual sins. Unprotected sex, boy, that's like anathema to them. The other one, probably the most important sex sin, according to the world, is, is, is judging people for what they do. Telling them they're wrong. That, that's like worse than unprotected sex to the world. But see, that's, that's the world's view. We don't live by the world's view. God's word is very clear. Sex outside of marriage is sin, period. God's plan is one man, one woman, one lifetime. And Jesus sets the highest possible standard for us here in verses 27 to 32 because he forces us into our hearts to discover our motives and our actions. The problem isn't with our eyes and our hands. The problem is in our hearts. All sin starts in your heart. And the Lord is showing us then the seriousness of sexual sin. Paul said it's the sin that we sin against ourselves. We sin against us by committing sexual sin. 
And again, we are not here to beat up on divorced people. God loves people that have been divorced. God also hates divorce, yes, but why? One reason why is because divorce hurts so many people. It hurts husbands, it hurts wives, it hurts parents, it hurts grandparents, it hurts children, and nobody knows better than divorced people how badly that hurts. Nobody ever went through a divorce and said, boy, that was fun, let's do it again. They understand, and we want to understand. We want to be loving and caring and accepting of them. We need to let God set the standards for our lives, not the world. How can we live in the purity that God commands of us? The first is to start respecting and accepting God's standard for purity. The second thing is that we need to run to the cross. Run to the cross of Christ for power and help. Whether you're lost or saved, Jesus is where you receive the power, the capability, the ability to obey his commands. And the more we accept and respect God's standards, the more we realize that we have fallen so miserably short of those standards. Philip Yancey explains the Sermon on the Mount this way. He says, The Sermon on the Mount is God's ideal plan toward which we should never stop striving. Our inability to live this ideal means that all people stand before God on level ground. The murderers and the hotheads, the adulterers, the lustful lookers, the thieves and the coveters. Because we do not measure up to these ideal standards, we have nowhere to turn but the grace and mercy of God of God. Any Christian who takes the Sermon on the Mount seriously is driven to his knees crying out, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. But hear the good news, he says. The same Jesus who commanded those impossible standards is the one who forgave an adulteress, a thief on the cross, and a disciple who denied ever knowing him. The Jesus who called us to be perfect is the same same one who paid the penalty on the cross for the sins of imperfect people like us. Only as we are healed by grace and equipped by the Holy Spirit can we grow toward the ideal of the Sermon on the Mount. See, we have and we will fall short of God's perfect standard. But what are we to do? Every single time we run to the cross, you run to Christ. Jesus Christ knew all about your sin when he died on that cross. And and, and he will certainly forgive everyone who turns to him and trusts him for forgiveness and salvation. Romans 6.23, you know what it says, the wages of sin is death. That's all that sin can do is cause death. But the verse goes on, but the gift of God. The demonstration of God's grace is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. How can we live in the purity that God commands? It is by pressing into Christ. Don't necessarily try to avoid sinning. Yes, you need to do that. But just focus on Christ and press into Christ. And you become so consumed with Christ that these sins will necessarily fall away. Number three. We also need to repent of sexual sin. 
We have to respect and accept God's standards. We have to run to Christ, but we need to repent of the sexual sins that we're guilty of. And of course we need to repent of any known sin. We all have areas of sin we have to repent from. Every one of us have areas where we are, are, are easily tripped, where we easily give in, where we're easily sucker punched by Satan and we sin. It's not Satan's fault when we sin, it's our fault. God wants us to repent. He wants us to turn from that sin and turn back to him. When he began his earthly ministry, Matthew 4, 17, he's preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Change your mind, change your thinking about your sin because the kingdom of heaven is right here. One of the best pictures of repentance in scripture is in Luke 15, prodigal son, the account, the parable. This rebellious young guy squandered all his inheritance on, on, on prostitutes and parties and wild living and all of that. And after he lost everything, a Jewish boy feeding pig. Can you see the irony there? Verse 17 says that, that he repented. He says, but when he came to himself, See, he changed what he believed about his sin, and it changed his behavior. That is repentance. And God loves our repentance. So that verse goes on to say, But while he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and fell on his neck and kissed him. The father was waiting for the son to repent, to change his mind and have his behavior changed and come back home to him. God is waiting for you to repent of your sexual sin. It will ruin you. It will destroy you. How can we live in the purity that God commands us to repent of your sexual sin? But number four, you also need to run from it. Run from sin. Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.22, flee also youthful lusts. Run away. You know Satan. You've probably never met him personally, but, but you know who I'm talking about. The one who led the revolt in heaven, taking one-third of the angels with him. The liar, the deceiver, the slanderer, the one who will put in place the Antichrist. All right? You can resist him. Resist the devil and he will flee. The second most powerful spiritual being outside of the Trinity is Satan. Him you can stand against and he'll run. But you cannot fight the flesh, your own body. You cannot fight sexual temptation. You have to run. You have to remove yourself from the temptation. You're not strong enough, and pardon me, but you're an idiot if you think you're strong enough to stand against it when God says you are not strong enough to stand against it. You don't stand and fight. You run. Strategic withdrawal. Remove yourself from the situation. You really do that with any kind of temptation that deals with your flesh. Because as much as we like to blame stuff on Satan and the world, 
really our flesh. Our, our flesh is our own worst enemy. God tells us that there are times when the best thing to do is just run away. Don't put yourself in the position where you could do wrong even if you wanted to. But if you find yourself in that position, run away. Just run away. You don't have to try to stand to fight it. God says, just, just get out of there. Just move. Joseph did it. He left his, his coat in the hands of Potiphar's wife. Because he was smart enough to know, I can't handle this. I need to leave and left. How can we live in the purity that God commands? You've got to run away from the sexual temptation. That brings us to number five. You've got to renew your mind with God's word. This is no secret. There's no magic formula. Nature and your mind abhor a vacuum. Paul taught Romans 12, 1 and 2, where he says, I beseech you, I beg you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is a reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed, changed from the inside out. How? By the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. See, this is how God rewires your brain. They used to think that once you were an addict, you were always an addict, uh, no matter what you were addicted to, because your brain could not be rewired. They found that to be false teaching now uh, due to what, if I can pronounce it right, neuroplasticity. If your brain can be rewired, it can be re-rewired, and it is re-rewired by the work of the Word of God and the Spirit of God in your mind. This is how it happens. You know and do God's word. And that knowing and doing, that hiding God's word in your heart that you may not sin against him as you meditate on the word of God, that changes the way your brain is wired. It changes your beliefs and it changes your behaviors. You're no longer bound by sexual sin. You know, as long as we are uh, residents of this world, Satan, the world, our flesh, it's going to try to entice us to slip back again. It, the, the, our, our three chief enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. But we can expect to make progress. Now, we may stumble but we can get up and we can keep going. And, and, and we may slip, but we can always move closer to God again. We shouldn't expect perfection, but we should expect that we can get closer and closer and closer to God. We'll never be perfect this side of heaven, but, but we can be forgiven and we can be growing as long as our minds are being renewed. Remember that John tells Christians in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, he says, if, I, if, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we think, no, sin's not a problem for me anymore. Boy, I know Jesus is Savior. I got the Holy Spirit indwelling in me. Sin, no, I got that thing licked. Liar. God says. But verse 9 says, if we confess our sin, 
if we agree with God about the heinousness of our sin and the damage that it's done to us and our desire to turn from it, all that's wrapped up in confess, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But not just to forgive us, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To have our fellowship with the Father restored. He'll do that. And remember 1 Corinthians 10, 13, God gives us a way out according to Romans chapter 6 and 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, that we can say no to sin, no temptation is going to overtake us, but, but same thing everybody else faces, common demand, but God will give us a way out. God will give us a way to say no. God will give us a way not to sin. In Christ, you are free not to sin. We've seen a big part of that way today. You respect and accept God's standard for purity. You run to Christ for power and help. You repent of your sexual sin and you run from sexual sin and you renew your mind with God's word. You know, all of, all of this only works, though, if you've been saved. If you have trusted Jesus as your Savior, you then have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. That's the only way that this, this works. If you've been saved, born again, washed in the blood of the Lamb, if you come to Jesus to be saved, then, then this works for you. Otherwise, if you don't know Jesus as Savior, John chapter 3, verse 18 says you're condemned already in your sin and you need to be uncondemned. Because, see, hell's not the problem. Sin's the problem. Hell's just the penalty for your sin. And you need Jesus to, to wash your sins away. You need to come to Jesus to be saved and have your sins forgiven so that you can be adopted into the family of God, become one of his children by faith in Christ, and then you can have freedom from sin. But not until then. Oh, but if you know Jesus as Savior, although it, it will happen, you never have to sin again. You will, but you never have to. Just let that sink in. Stand with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Father, this morning we want to thank you again. Lord, as we do every Sunday morning, we thank you for your word. It, it is precious, and there are believers around the world that would, though they don't have much, they would give all they had for one page of this precious book. Thank you for its authority. Thank you for the way that your Holy Spirit opens us up and lays us wide open. It fillets us so that we can see our own thoughts, our own motives, our own intents, that nothing is hid from you and your word. And I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would examine us.
And I pray that he would convict us of the sin that separates us from you, that hurts our fellowship with you if we know Jesus as Savior, but that sin that separates us if we don't know Christ. Father, we pray that your spirit would work. Draw those in, Father, that don't know Christ as Savior. Lord, if anybody is here that doesn't know Jesus, Lord, they stand before you condemned already, and they're going to suffer the penalty of that sin in the lake of fire, and that doesn't have to happen. But you've provided the way through Christ. And I pray that you not give them rest until they find their rest in Christ, that you work until Christ be formed in them. Father, for those of us who know you, we may have gotten slack. We may have gotten lax. We may have, to use the expression, danced with the devil in some of these sins. We've walked too close to the line. I pray, Father, that you yank us back. That we can walk in purity. And we can walk in power. And we can walk in authority. Because our sins have been confessed. And you have been faithful to cleanse us from all that unrighteousness and we have that power of relationship with you father please do that work in us this morning we pray in jesus name amen mike would you come